0: I want to take you to Boston. It's the 10th of July 2006. It's 11.01 at night, and a car is traveling through the I-90 connector tunnel en route to Logan International Airport. Inside the car is a husband and wife, Angel and Milena Del Valle. They're making a normal trip that many cars make every day. But tonight, on the 10th of July, as they're traveling through the tunnel, A section of the tunnel's suspended concrete ceiling suddenly begins to collapse. 24 tons of concrete and its supporting structure fall and impact the vehicle. The husband, Angel, escapes with minor injuries, but his wife, Milena, is killed. This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human, and organizational causes of failure, and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. I'm your host, Sean Brady. In this episode, you'll hear about why this collapse in the I-90 connector tunnel occurred. You'll hear how this particular section of tunnel had been open to traffic for six years, yet no warning of impending failure was detected. And you'll also hear how the investigation team slowly assembled evidence, piece by piece, to build a jigsaw puzzle of what went wrong to culminate in this incident. So this episode isn't just about what caused the failure, it's also about giving you a window into how these types of forensic investigations are actually undertaken. So to start this story, we need to go back and look at the history of this tunnel. So this tunnel was constructed as part of a massive infrastructure project in Boston. It was officially referred to by a technical name, but it is much more commonly known as the Big Dig. Now, this was one of the most costly and complex public infrastructure projects ever undertaken in the U.S. Its final project cost was in excess of 14 billion U.S. dollars, and it took 20 years to complete. Its aim was to reduce Boston's congestion problems, and the project involved the construction of 259 kilometres of highway lanes, including 8 kilometres of tunnel. They built 16 interchanges and 200 bridges, And it was managed by Bechtel and Parsons Brinckerhoff. Now, the tunnel where the collapse occurred was the I-90 Connector Tunnel, and it was open to traffic in December 2000. It was constructed as a cut-and-cover tunnel, and this means that you essentially dig a big trench and then cover the trench, and that's what gives you the tunnel. Now, as you heard, in 2006, some of the suspended ceiling panels in the tunnel collapsed. And to understand why this happened, we need to step back and look at how this tunnel was constructed. So first, why have a ceiling in the tunnel? What does it do? Well, the primary reason to have a ceiling is for ventilation purposes. A portion of this area between the suspended ceiling and the roof contains ventilation ducts. These are used to maintain air quality in the tunnel and to remove smoke if there's a fire. And this ceiling space is quite high. There's about 1.7 meters between the ceiling and the roof. Now, in terms of construction, this ceiling was made up of concrete panels that were suspended by beams and rods from the roof of the tunnel. And it was some of these panels, as well as some of the supporting structure, that fell. So now we need to get into some detail as to how these concrete panels are actually suspended from the tunnel roof. So in this particular section of the tunnel, the concrete panels are supported by a number of support beams that run along the length of the tunnel. So these beams hold up the panels. The beams are then supported by hanger support rods. Which are in turn supported by roof hanger plates and these roof hanger plates are connected to the tunnel roof by epoxy anchors. So what's an epoxy anchor? Well one way to think about it is that it's a threaded bar that sticks out of the tunnel roof then using a nut you can connect the hanger plate to it. So to install these anchors you drill a hole in the tunnel roof, clean out the hole, push epoxy into the hole which is like a glue, And then you push the anchor, which is a treaded bar, up into the hole. The epoxy sets, which now leaves you with a treaded bar hanging from the roof. And this is what you bolt the hanger plates to. So just to recap, you've got concrete panels which are supported on beams, which in turn are supported by hanger support rods, which in turn are connected to hanger plates, And these hanger plates are connected to the roof of the tunnel using epoxy anchors. So that's how the system works. Now the ceiling panels that collapsed were installed by a company called Modern Continental in November 1999. The tunnel was then opened to traffic in December 2000 and the incident occurred in 2006. So this ceiling appeared to have no obvious issues for six years before its sudden collapse. Now, to understand why it collapsed, we're going to step through the investigation that was undertaken by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB. This will not only explain what happened, but as you heard already, it will also give you some insight into what's involved in these sorts of investigations. So let's look at the physical evidence first. The NTSB found that 24 tonnes of ceiling panels, along with one supporting beam and its rods and hanger plates, was lying in the tunnel. Now these panels were largely undamaged or had sustained some minor damage in the fall. What this meant was that the panels didn't suddenly break and fall. Instead, it meant that something in the supporting structure had failed and this had allowed the panels to fall. So what allowed the panels to fall? Well, as you heard, the NTSB found one of the support beams lying in the tunnel. So why did this beam fall? When the NTSB examined the beam, they found that the support rods were still attached, so they weren't the point of failure. And not only were the rods still attached, so too were the hanger plates that connected the rods to the tunnel roof. So the panels, the beam and the rods all seemed to have fallen from the roof without either of these individual components contributing to the failure. Which brings us to the epoxy anchors. When the NTSB went looking for the anchors they found that every single one of the 20 anchors that connected this particular beam to the tunnel roof had pulled free from the roof. Now the important thing here is that the anchors themselves were not damaged. They were still intact. It was the epoxy holding the anchors in the roof that seemed to have failed. Now, there was plenty of hardened epoxy still stuck to the failed anchors and the NTSB was able to run tests on it. And there were a few things about the epoxy that was interesting. The first was that there was evidence of fractured epoxy and voids in the epoxy. And this begged the question, were installation issues a cause of the failure? The second thing that was noticeable was very curious. It looked like some portions of the epoxy had been exposed to the air for a long time. In other words, it looked like some of these anchors had pulled some distance out of the roof in the past and exposed some of the epoxy to the air. And this then begs the next question, what about the anchors in the rest of the tunnel, the anchors that didn't fail? One of the things they did was they inspected the rest of the anchors. They climbed up into that ceiling area and what they found was pretty shocking. In this section of the tunnel, there were 634 anchors and they found that 161 of them, so 25% of them, had pulled some distance out of the roof. So this was not a local issue with the panels that actually failed. This was apparently a widespread issue with the epoxy anchors. The NTSB said that by the time of the collapse, a significant portion of the anchors in this section of the tunnel had pulled out far enough that without corrective action, several more of the ceiling panels were at imminent risk of collapse. So what's going on here? What would cause anchors to pull out of the roof like this? And why wasn't this noticed during inspections? Why did it take six years for the failure to actually occur? So let's deal with some easy points first. You heard the NTSB found evidence of improper installation with some of these anchors. For example, there were voids in the epoxy. But what role did this play in the failure? Well, it would turn out not to be very relevant. The NTSB said that despite the evidence of improper installation, this alone couldn't account for the anchor failures that were observed before and after the incident. So improper installation wasn't the cause of the failure. So if it wasn't installation, was this a case that the anchors were unable to carry the loading that was applied to them? In other words, was the anchor's ability to carry load less than anticipated? Well, initially it looked like this shouldn't have been an issue. The NTSB found that these anchors were load tested after installation. In other words, a load was applied to them to see if they could sustain that load over a short period of time. And they could. They could. In fact, the anchors could, in the short term, carry significantly higher loads than was required. But could this sustain the load over the long term? Well, in order to try and answer that, we need to step back through the history of this epoxy, and you'll discover it's a complicated and ambiguous history. So the epoxy used went by the brand name of NRC 1000 Gold Epoxy, and it was supplied by Powers fasteners. This gold epoxy was available not only in one version, but two versions, a standard set or a fast set version. Now the NTSB undertook some tests on the epoxy and found that only the fast set epoxy had been used in this section of the tunnel. So now let's look at the comparison of the fast set and standard set epoxy. The NTSB discovered that when you tested the fast set epoxy and the standard set epoxy, you found they both had very similar performance under short-term loading. And this makes sense because the fast set epoxy that was used in the tunnel had passed the short-term loading tests. However, the two epoxies were dramatically different when you subjected them to long-term loading. So what do we mean by long-term loading? Well, long-term loading is load that needs to be carried for long periods of time. And this is exactly the situation in the tunnel the epoxy was required to hold up the ceiling 24-7, year in, year out. So while the standard set epoxy, which wasn't used in the tunnel, was fine for long-term loading, the fast set epoxy, which was used in the tunnel, wasn't. In technical terms, it had poor resistance to creep. What's creep? Well, lots of materials creep when they're subject to long term loading. They stretch and deform in response to the loading. And it turns out that the fast set epoxy does too. Over time, it stretches like chewing gum. This meant that the fast set epoxy had allowed the anchors to slowly pull out of the roof over time. They were displacing because the epoxy was stretching, it was creeping. That led the NTSB to conclude that the ceiling collapse occurred because of the poor creep resistance of the fast-set epoxy. So why would the ceiling installer, Modern Continental, use an epoxy that had a poor creep resistance? Well, the NTSB found no evidence that Modern Continental were offered a choice or made a conscious decision to use one epoxy formulation over the other. Now think about that. Here you've got a company who's installing anchors in a tunnel that'll have to support long-term loading and they're not aware that the epoxy being used was susceptible to creep and was therefore unsuitable for this application. So this then brings us back to the supplier of the epoxy. Now as you heard, the supplier was Powers' fasteners. And when the NTSB looked at their records, they found significant ambiguity associated with the epoxy supplied. The NTSB found that prior to 1997, so this is two years prior to anchor installation, Powers undertook creep testing on the standard set epoxy. Now remember, this isn't the one that ended up in the tunnel. And they found that this standard set epoxy met the required standards for creep. So the epoxy that didn't end up in the tunnel had adequate creep resistance. Fast forward then to February 2000. This is after the installation of the anchors using the fast-set epoxy. And Powers issue an evaluation report that notes that the fast-set epoxy was only permitted for short-term loading situations. So now you have a fast-set epoxy already in the tunnel, but the suppliers have a report saying it shouldn't be used in this type of situation. And as the NTSB dug deeper, they found that the fast-set epoxy had been tested for creep performance as early as 1995 and 96, before its installation in the tunnel, and it had failed to meet the standard from a creep perspective. So this is potentially why the recommendation for short-term use only appeared years later. Now, ultimately, the NTSB found that the information that was provided by Powers regarding the fast-set epoxy was inadequate and misleading. And this meant that Modern Continental used the fast-set epoxy even though it had been shown through testing to be susceptible to creep under sustained long-term loading. So who approved this epoxy for use? And how much did they know about its limitations? Well, the anchor design was approved by Gannett Fleming, the design consultant for the tunnel finishes they didn't identify what type of epoxy standard or fast set was being used, even though they were provided with information indicating that one version of the epoxy should be used for short-term loading only. Which brings us to a key question. Once the fast set epoxy was installed, were there any opportunities to detect the issue before the catastrophic failure in 2006? Well, just like every failure we talk about, there were opportunities. The first of these occurred in September 1999. This was more than six years before the failure. A modern continental employee was installing anchors in a tunnel adjacent to the one where the failure happened, and they noticed that a number of the anchors had started to pull out of the roof. They were displacing. This was noted, inspections were carried out over the next two weeks that followed, and it was determined that the distance the anchors had pulled out was increasing. What happened next? Bechtel and Parsons-Brinkerhoff suspected these displacements were a result of improper installation by Modern Continental and it was agreed between Bechtel, Parsons-Brinkerhoff and Modern Continental to replace the displaced anchors and subject them to further short-term load testing. So, rather than investigating the actual cause of the displacement, and despite some individuals in the company voicing concerns that the real reason for the displacement hadn't been identified, the anchors were simply replaced and the creep issue went unidentified. Then, two years later, there was another missed opportunity. In another portion of the I 90 connector tunnel, it was discovered that more anchors had begun to pull out of the roof, even though they'd been proof tested just two months earlier. But as before, rather than getting to the bottom of the movement, these anchors were replaced and the cause of the displacement remained unknown. So in all, the NTSB concluded that Bechtel, Parsons Brinkerhoff and Modern Continental should have put in place a programme to monitor the anchors and make sure these displacements had been addressed. And if they had the failure in 2006 may have been prevented. Which brings us to the final opportunity to identify that anchors were pulling out of the roof. No inspections of the ceiling space were undertaken between 2003 and the collapse. If these inspections had taken place, then it's likely that the anchor displacement would have been identified. And the reason it would have likely been identified was that by this stage, a significant number of the anchors would have pulled far enough out of the roof that they'd have been very noticeable, even to a casual observer. And this led the NTSB to conclude that if the Massachusetts Turnpike Authority had inspected the area above the suspended ceilings in the tunnel, they would have identified the anchor creep and they could have done something about it. Unlike many catastrophic structural collapses, a series of errors, oversights, omissions, poor communication and missed opportunities all came together to cause the failure. And in many ways, this failure happened because of ambiguity. There were two epoxies, one that would have been fine for long-term loading and one that wasn't. And the one that wasn't ended up in the tunnel. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human, and organizational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood a firm that specializes in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects, and failures in the mining and construction sectors. If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhaywood.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.